Natasha Gutierrez is a Filipina journalist who has covered politics, current events, wars, sports, and women's issues, and is currently the editor-in-chief for Vice in Asia-Pacific. After graduating from Yale University in the United States, she moved back home to the Philippines to begin her career as one of the founding multimedia reporters for Rappler. Chasing stories, beating deadlines, dealing with danger, death threats, lawsuits, and sexual harassment. All of that has been part and parcel of her chosen path. My name is Leah Cruz. On this episode of What Glass Ceiling, we talk to Natasha Gutierrez. Hi, Natasha. Welcome to What Glass Ceiling. Currently, Natasha, you're based in Singapore as the editor-in-chief of Vice Asia. So you're overseeing quite a lot of themes in quite a lot of countries. Can you tell us a little more about all the work that goes into that? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, Leah, thanks so much for having me, obviously, on your podcast. It's, it's exciting for me to talk about um, issues, so I'm, I'm excited to be here. Um, but yes, I'm currently based in Singapore as editor-in-chief of Vice, and I oversee all of our editorial operations across Asia-Pacific. Um, that means I have teams across eight different countries in the region, from wow. Australia through to um, Southeast Asia, you know, and then going through Japan, Korea, all the way to India. So it is quite a, quite a challenge, um, but it's obviously very exciting to work with a bunch of different teams from a bunch of different countries and a bunch of different cultures. That sounds like a lot of responsibility for you. You're, you're in your early 30s, so that's like a lot on your shoulders right now. How exactly did you arrive to, you know, come to be at this position that you're in? Yeah, so uh, it, it's funny, right? Because I am actually hitting my decade mark in August and it flies by so quickly. But then you also look at sort of the early days of your career and getting here at this point, you're like, yeah, you know what? I deserve to be here. I respected the grind. I did the, the work that I needed to do to get here. So how it all started was after graduation, I, I went to college in the U.S. And after graduation, I was looking for a journalism job. And I'm Filipina. I've always been passionate about news in the Philippines. And so I reached out to Maria Ressa uh, upon graduation and just asked her if she thought it might be a good idea for me to return to the Philippines to do journalism. At that point, she was still heading ABS-CBN. And she said, you know what? Yes, come back. I'm about to start this new thing called Rappler. And I thought it was, I couldn't honestly even understand what she was trying to tell me about this multimedia online workspace. And, you know, Rappler is not even a real word. But obviously, I, I took that leap. I came home to the Philippines from the U.S. I didn't tell my parents because my parents would probably not have supported it. And they were not happy when I came back and showed up in their doorstep. But I just sort of knew that it was it sounded like what I wanted to do. It was news. It was something new. So I came back and we started Rappler. Um, there was 12 of us in the founding team. But when I say we were 12, we literally were just 12. And we had to just grind, you know. And they threw me on the field. I didn't know anything about reporting. And it was really just learning how to swim. Um, and so when I say I paid my dues and I did the work to get here, I really mean it, right? We were shooting our own stuff, reporting, writing, tweeting all at the same time. This was very early days of multimedia reporting and journalism. And those years were honestly golden years, right? I was with Rappler for seven years, learned everything I knew about journalism there. And then 
you know, it was such a new platform, but it grew so quickly and it really poised me for an international career. And I think, you know, it's what made me attractive to a media outlet like Vice. They saw that we were multimedia journalists. We were ahead of the game. We learned so quickly. We were nimble. We adjusted so quickly with the media space. And that was appealing to them. And so I got the role at Vice. I moved to Singapore, packed my bags and go. I obviously, as you can tell now, um, I tend to just pack up and go um, where the story <laughs> is, where the job is. Um, so yeah, I think it was a mix of really just respecting the grind, doing what I had to do to get there, but also courage in, in taking a leap. Um, and so that's where I am now. When you reached out to Maria Ressa, did you know her prior or was that like a cold call that you didn't, that you hadn't met her previously? We met once. We met one time um, during one summer when I came home to the Philippines. Um, you know, we had a common friend who knew I was interested in journalism, introduced us. It was literally a 15-minute <clears throat> meeting. She's a very busy woman. She was running ABS at that time. And then we just sort of followed each other on Twitter so when I reached out sort of four years later, um, when I had graduated or three years later, she was like, you know what? I remember you because I follow you on Twitter. And she says, that, you know, she tells the story as I follow you on Twitter. I saw your values were intact. So when you reached out to me, I was sort of like, you know, she was willing to take a risk on me. I was willing to take a risk on her. But honestly, the bigger risk was her on me. I always tell her I could have been some, you know, crazy psycho that you were, you know, employing even before actually yeah, meeting yeah. me. My risk wasn't that big. It's Maria, right? She's ran CNN. So we both took a, although we both took a risk with each other and it paid off. Yeah. And you moved back here for that. Your parents were here. Your family, your, was your whole family here? Yeah. In the Philippines? Yes, my family was here. But you know how it is in the Philippines, right? There's a little bit of a mentality where, and once you make it out of the Philippines, that's the goal. And once you make it to the US, like that's success. And so I didn't tell them I was coming back. I secretly packed up my bags and I knocked on our front door and my mom, literally her face just was, what are you doing here? Aren't you supposed to be in the US? <laughs> um, and I said, look, I got a job with this thing called Rappler. And at that time, you know, Rappler started on Facebook. So no one knew what it was. And she just, you could just tell the disappointment in her face. You know, she was like, you studied four years in a university in the US. And then, you know, you're throwing all of that away to come back to, to work for a website. She couldn't understand it. Tell me more about what you studied in the U.S. Was, was journalism part of what you had set out to do? So I've always wanted to be a journalist. I think, you know, I was probably 11 years old when I, when I, uh, my family members tell me the story of sort of taking utensils and pretending it was a microphone and pretending I was reporting. So, and I've always loved writing. I've always loved reading. So I always sort of knew I wanted to do this. Um, I got to college and I, uh, I went to Yale and they didn't have journalism. But obviously, it's an incredible university. It's a liberal arts college. And so I sort of looked at, okay, what am I interested in? They don't offer journalism, but obviously, I want to go to the school. And so I ended up with psychology, which I believe is so intrinsically tied anyway to journalism. But I think it also is just at the core of it. I do journalism because I'm interested in stories and in humans, and psychology studies the same. And I sincerely believe that my psychology background helped me become the journalist I am and sort of just understanding people the way I do. Okay, so you you had this amazing educational background because not everybody gets to go to Yale. But at the same time, after graduating from Yale, you really had to put yourself out there. I mean, you know, messaging Maria Ressa is not something that a lot of people would be able to do. Yeah, I graduated the year after the Wall Street crash. So the job market in the U.S. was very, very bad. It was very hard to find jobs. And 
the only jobs available to me at that time to be able to stay in the U.S. and to get my visa sponsored was in finance or in tech. And in my heart, I just, you know, wanted to do journalism. And, you know, all the grownups were telling me, just do what you need to do to stay in the U.S. and then switch to journalism. And I just couldn't fathom the idea of having to go to work and not love my job. And I know that is such a, I guess, privileged perspective and so silly, right? Because we always tell people now also, even even fresh grads, just take a job and then you'll make your way up. But I was very stubborn about that. And, you know, I was stubborn, but I was also willing to make sacrifices. I was, you know, I I flew back and I was paid very, very little to start. Um, Even after what you're saying, you know, a a four-year university in the U.S. But I don't know, I, I, I followed what... God, this is so cliche, but I did follow my passion. Um, and, and, you know, 10 years later, here we are. Yeah. Do you think that's something that a lot of women nowadays consider? Do you think that's that stop, that stop in their minds? Like, I, I want to follow my passion. I want to do something that I really want to be doing and that I believe in. Do you think now more than ever, it's something that they think about? I think now more than ever, yes. Because there's more opportunities open to women. I think the idea of equality of, of men sharing household chores, for example, is something that's opening up. So I think now more than ever, yes. You know, also social media has brought about the exposure of all these different lives, right? We see women who seemingly can do it all, or we see alternative views of women who may not have grown up, who may not have seen growing up because we didn't have social media. So now I think as we're more exposed to the different ideas of what a successful woman can look like, we also as women begin to expand our own perspectives on what do we want to do? What can we do? What do? What are our passions and can we follow it? Yeah. And coming from Rappler, I know that Rappler is a newsroom that's run by women. So that's like light years away from like, for example, my own experience in the newsroom because, you know, there are lots of male journalists and they tend to be your bosses. I mean, uh, you they're far few and far between, more so here in the Philippines than maybe in other countries. But Rappler is a newsroom that's run by women. So I'm so interested in getting your perspective on what that was like. Yeah, absolutely. I think, honestly, one of the biggest privileges of my career was to have been mentored by women, women leaders, and not just women, but like women who are just killing it in their fields. You know, um, Maria as my first mentor is not a realistic thing, right? Like it's very hard to find that sort <laughs> of mentorship. Um, but she was so unselfish with her sources and her knowledge. And she was so invested in our growth as journalists And that made all the difference, I think, for me. Um, And, you know, aside from Maria, our managing editor, Glenda Gloria, is among the best in the industry. She's just, her ethics are on just, you know, there is no gray line. There's only black or white, right? And and we're very strict on our ethics and our rules. Um, Our investigative reporter, our editor, Chai Hoffelenia, is a journalism professor in Ateneo. And our production head was also a woman, Beth Frondoso, right? So imagine being surrounded by such strong women in media, and that's all I knew from the get-go. There was nothing yeah. I, I couldn't do, you know? Yeah. There was no yeah, glass it's, it's, in that newsroom. Zero. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so coming from that kind of background, that kind of newsroom, that kind of environment, you had to deal with a lot of issues. And with those issues, misogyny from the outside world from because of the stories that you covered. So what was it like to have that kind of 
environment to go back to when you got back to the office? Yeah, so it, it, it was kind of crazy, right? Because I think I was very spoiled coming in. And, and like I said, there was no glass ceiling in that Rappler newsroom. But very quickly, even at Rappler, I soon learned that the moment you stepped out of the safety of that newsroom, people looked at women journalists very differently. You don't have to go far to experience that. I think on the field, that is so common Uh, you know, in my early days as a reporter, you had to deal with a lot of harassment being on the field, not just from the subjects of your interviews, but from your fellow male journalists, unfortunately, it's, you know, um, so that was, it wasn't so much of a rude awakening. It was just, to me, it was, I think, safer inside the newsroom than it was outside once you were on the field, because that was then the real world, right? Okay, I, I have to ask, what was the worst thing that you've ever felt as a female journalist out on the field. And, and I'm sure you, maybe you have like, I don't know, top five, top 10, but maybe you give me your, your, the number one thing, the most difficult thing you had to go through. Yeah. As a female journalist. Out. Yeah. There's okay, one that stands out. So I covered a Manny Pacquiao fight in Las Vegas. And as you know, you know, the boxing reporting world is very, very male, very, very male. So, But, you know, to me, this was like the coverage of a lifetime. I mean, imagine, I, I, I'm a huge boxing fan. So I've been following Manny's career, all, obviously, since, since I was 12. So to me, to be able to go to Vegas and cover the fight was huge. And I was alone. So like I said in Rappler, you know, we shot our own stuff. We reported, we wrote everything, everything. We were our own producer. We were like a one-man team, right? So I went alone, completely alone to, to a boxing coverage, which was meant to be, honestly, the best coverage of my life, which very quickly turned traumatic for me. So, you know, there was a male uh, shooter, a videographer who was also, you know, we were all in the same press conference. We were covering the same stuff. And he was quite friendly, but you know how it is, Leah, right? Like you want to, you need to be able to get along with your fellow journalists because, everybody's interviewing the same people and you sort of share information to make sure no one is out scooped. So you have to sort of play the game. So, you know, he was making some jokes that I thought were a little tasteless, but I was like, it's fine. Like I can still handle it. You sort of laugh it off. And then he goes, have you ever been raped before? Okay. Completely out of the blue. And I was just completely shocked. And I said, you know, I pretended not to hear it. I said, you know, sort of laughed it off. And he's like, no, I'm serious. Have you ever been raped? And then I kept quiet and he goes, because I think you'd like it, you know? And he, Oh my yeah. goodness. Yeah. So he said something like that. He said, you know, I, I think you'd like it. And I was so quiet and there were other men around and no one said anything. No one told him to stop. Nobody defended me. And I didn't really know what to say. So I walked away and I didn't call my editors. I didn't call them until after the coverage because I didn't want them to think I couldn't handle it. But I think that was a mistake on my part. This was sort of, you know, the first time I sort of felt that pure, I didn't feel safe. I literally didn't feel safe. And I was alone in my hotel room. I was scared he was going to come. Like, I didn't know what that meant, right? And so when I got back to the Philippines, I told my editors. And my editors were like, why didn't you tell us? So they actually filed a, they filed a report, a harassment report with that guy's newsroom, who obviously denied that it had happened. And I said, you know, there were men there. I said, there were, I can give you their names. And so they reached out to them and all of them said it never happened. 
And that to me was just, it. I mean, you felt so helpless, right? Because no one was standing up for you. But also at the same time, it was a he said, she said thing. And that stayed with me for a long time. Um, but yeah, you know, that's a type of stuff, I guess, that, that we deal with. I, I, I'm at a loss for words. I don't know how to react. But I know these kinds of things do happen. It's not uncommon. Right. It's not uncommon. And, and um, I've covered sports too. And and our paths have crossed while we were covering sports. So this must have been pretty early in your yes. journalism career because you were still covering sports because you you moved away from sports yes. after a while. Yes, was it that because was of incidents early. like this? No, I think I think I was just naturally more inclined towards politics and current events. Um, but okay. also, let's be real, right? This doesn't just it's not just in sports i mean it was throughout politics, you know even through politics there were you know men in power who just made very um tasteless advances you know invites would send you um tickets to the ballet just things that were inappropriate right or gave gifts um so yeah it's not ever exclusive to a certain field obviously sports is notoriously male male heavy uh but it it follows you Anywhere, um, as long as you're a female journalist. Is this the is this the worst um, incident of misogyny that you've experienced as a female journalist? I mean, I know you've covered so many dangerous stories. You've covered you've you've done war stories. You've gone to Afghanistan. You've gone to Marawi. Is this where you felt most threatened? I think that this really stuck with me because it was the first time that something so outward happened and was told to my face and I was alone. I think that's the thing, right? When you're alone. And that's the other thing I've noticed when you're with a male colleague on the field, there's more respect almost like they just sort of stay away because they feel like you have a protector. But when you're alone, it's almost like, Oh, fresh meat, like target, right? She can't protect herself. Yeah. Because in the early days, obviously we did report yes. alone. Later on, we, we traveled in teams. So there was a little bit of like safety in numbers that sort of helped protect yeah. us as well. Um, but again, you know, like this happens regularly in the sense of, again, like if you're, and I, I think one of the things that I learned after that is I was never alone in a room with a male subject. I just never felt comfortable. Um, I've had yeah. interviews requested for me that it was just me and a senior politician. And I've consistently said no to that. Um, but yeah, I feel like advances, you can almost turn away if, if it's, it's not that, if it's, it's a little more discreet, but when it's that outward, that's what scared me because I thought that, you know, if you can say it so loudly and so proudly, then there's an impunity here where you think you can get away with it. Um, so I think that's what shocked me is how bra- like how yeah. crass it was and how brash it was, you know? Okay. So I, I mentioned also that you've been in a lot of dangerous situations as a journalist. So you you covered Marawi, the drug war. You've been to Kabul in, a, in Afghanistan. And these are all places that, you know, normally people would be scared to send women to because of mm-hmm. the, the culture, the culture, the, the impunity in the culture against females in those places. Have you ever been scared for yourself? Or what did what did your loved ones tell you when, when they learned that you were going to these places? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something that my family can never get used to, right? Uh <laughs> um, I get a lot of of flack 
from family members when I tell them I'm going to the, you know, the war zone, especially my sister, my older sister, Crystal, she's very protective of me. So when she hears I'm going, she's like, why are you just chasing danger? Do you just like, are you, do you just want to die? Like, do you want to die early? You know, she says all these things and it's, it's hard to explain, but like, you know, I, I think that at the core of it, journalism really is about going out on the field and meeting the people who are most affected. And to me, I am a good editor because I know what it's like to be on the field. And I think that, you know, to be able to earn the respect of my reporters, I need to also be the one to go out there and do I feel safe? What can our security team do better? Right. And I become a little bit more empathetic, a little bit more sensitive to the needs of our reporters. I think there is an element of respect when you go and you experience it yourself rather than sit on your desk and assign your reporters. Um, you know, and I, I really think it's it's something that's part of of being a leader in the newsroom. Um, and of course, it's scary. Right. I, I would be lying if I said, no, I'm never scared. Um, the first night in Kabul, I couldn't sleep. Um, you know, I was awoken by every single sound. I was jarred by the fact that there's four padlocks in my hotel door and there's a metal, you know, enclosure around the elevator. I'm like, why? Right. This is not normal. So of course it's scary. But, but again, right. Like this is the core of journalism. I think it's really going on the field and hearing those stories. And that's what gives me so much fulfillment in my job is to be able to be in the front lines. And I know it's not for everybody, but but it's one of the things I love most about my job. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Now, hand in hand with the danger that you have to face is having to face all of these serious and depressing topics. I mean, they, they can really eat up at your core to have to deal with, with serious issues, with when you see tragedy right in front of you and, and everything that's happening in the world. As a journalist also, how do you, Basically, keep yourself sane. I mean, how do you approach your mental health having to deal with issues like this? You know, I think this is such an important topic. Um, at Rappler, we literally, and, and Marie has said this, we we have death threats for breakfast, right? Like there was no, there was a time where every single time you'd open your social media, it's just a bunch of hate and it just got so exhausting and so draining. Um, you know, and I think newsrooms have become a lot better in providing support for their journalists, but that wasn't the case, right? So back then when I just needed a break, you needed to recognize it in yourself and be able to step away and literally take a break. Um, but now, and I think this is one of the things that I love most about FICE, is the support they give when it comes to wellness, when it comes to mental health. We have free counseling. Um, we have, uh, you know, days of rest where it's like mandated in the newsroom where people just take a day off. Um, but these are things that I think newsrooms are getting better and better at. Vibe is de- Vice is definitely good at that. Um, and, and even being on the field. Honestly, when I was in Kabul, I felt so safe and so supported by our security team who are the best in the field. You know, these are people who are supporting you, who have been to war. They're ex-Marines. They're, you know, they've they've prepped you for it. And literally sometimes like the, the preparation is literally what to do if you got kidnapped. But, you know, and sometimes they're extreme. But at the same time, feeling protected and feeling safe is good for your mental health. It's good for your wellness. So I think that, you know, newsrooms have to do a better job at supporting their journalists. That's, that's key. Um, especially because it's not always easy as a journalist to recognize that I'm so far deep, right? Like journalists are so invested in stories and they don't ever want to be seen as taking a step back, but that's okay to be able to do that. But you also need good leadership in newsrooms to be able to say, look, you've been doing this. You've been covering the protests in Myanmar nonstop. You've been covering the Thailand um, protests nonstop. Take a break, 
right? Yeah. Um, but for me, yeah, I mean, we had to recognize it ourselves. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's important to support journalists on the field like that. Yeah. Now, obviously, as a journalist and now as an editor in chief, you are you're a smart, capable woman. I mean, you wouldn't be at that point <laughs> in your career if if you weren't. But has there ever been any incident or have you experienced sort of, I don't know, how do you say it, uh, stigmas because you're a woman and you're in this position where you have to show that you're capable and that you have power? Is it hard to be a smart, capable woman? Yes. I mean, absolutely, right? Um, you don't ever want to be, you want to you come off as capable, but you know how it is for us. We're seen as too loud, too bossy. Yeah to this, to that, right? Um, your tone needs to be different. There's a lot of things that like, m- I feel men in leadership positions in newsrooms can get away with that women yeah. cannot, right? It's like negative connotations and stuff. And you have to like almost soften your stance and do this and do that. It's, there's so many rules for us. There's so many rules for us, especially if you're in a leadership position or to make your way up. Like you have to be just right. Um, and that's exhausting. I, and I always tell my partner, you know, I need to sleep more than you because my brain cells are used so much more in the day because I'm having to look at not just my job, but all the social cues that I have to navigate to see how, you know, how do I say this? And look, even as a confident person, and I know my skills and my abilities, sometimes it takes so much courage for me. And this is, and, and you know, and like you're saying, you're someone who's gone to the field who's gone to war but in a meeting room that's mostly men it still takes a lot of courage to be able to speak why right why um it's it's funny but like you internalize society's views on women and i think that for us we don't realize just how much until you catch yourself questioning can i say this is this going to sound right did i say please too much why did i ask a question rather than you know state it but again, this is also a step to the right direction because the more we recognize these things, the more we realize that we need to undo these habits and these biases that we've internalized, right? But it's so hard. It's really hard. <laughs> Are there any changes that you're trying to actively make in running your own newsroom? I mean, knowing all of this, I mean, what, what are you trying to instill in the people under you? Yeah. Um, I tell the female journalists not to apologize too much. I tell them to be more assertive. Um, you know, when someone isn't speaking too much in a meeting, I'll usually ping her on the side and be like, is there anything we can do to support you? Is there something, you know, is there is there something wrong? I've noticed you haven't been speaking in our meetings and stuff. So I try to really sort of go one-on-one on people, understanding that it's not always easy to speak up in big in big places. Um, mental health is big. Um, I, I I like checking in on my reporters, especially when, it feels like when I know they've been grinding for a while, it helps to have someone just feel like you care, you know? So I do try to take on a more hands-on approach and leadership towards my reporters. Okay. And speaking of young reporters, I mean, as a female journalist, you know, I'm sure there are lots of young females who would like to break into the industry also, but of course you've outlined a lot of the scarier parts, the more difficult nuances of being a female journalist. What would you, what would you tell them really? I mean, of course, it's probably not going to deter them wanting to get into right. it, but what advice can you give? I think the first thing is that it's not an easy job, right? Journalism, I really see it as a public service, and it's not for everybody. 
So if this is something you want to do, make sure that you are fit for it because there is a lot of a lot of abuse both online and offline um but the rewards are endless i think there is nothing like your first byline there's nothing like getting the story ahead of everybody else um oh my god i sound so competitive but like you know i think if you're a journalist you sort of will understand <laughs> um but also i think the biggest thing here is that authoritarian leaders and um just like especially today i feel like there's really a push to silence female journalists and what we need to understand is that when we succeed in scaring female journalists from entering the field we are silencing literally half of the population and that affects the type of stories that are told that affects the type of media we consume and there is a real need for more women voices in media otherwise we are getting a very biased perspective of the world if only men are writing and reporting news the news we will get will always be biased so they need us right women need to be in this field there is a need for women like you basically to join us um in telling stories in telling authentic stories and and you are definitely doing exactly just that you're as as the ad in chief of a of a global platform really you're you're making it you're on the global stage you're up in i making it on the global stage now what are the nuances of this though do you feel a certain responsibility or you know uh does it make you nervous yeah i think you know i think being filipino is so much a part of my identity um i'm naturally t- drawn to stories about the philippines and southeast asia um but i also recognize that this is an opportunity to have our voices heard to have our nuances highlighted you know in on a global platform so for example and i think one of the biggest things that i love about working for vice for such a global platform with such a wide reach is to be able to tell our stories from asia in an authentic way right so um i just launched a series that i'm hosting called unequal and it's about the experience of women in asia and we look at laws we look at discriminatory practices across asia and how those affect real women so for example the first episode was on female genital mutilation right and we talked about how that affects women in singapore specifically but this is exactly what i'm talking about these stories would not make it to a world stage if we didn't have representation in the newsroom if i wasn't you know maybe the editor in chief of vice these stories will never get told to a wider platform or it might be told but through a western lens right there is yeah. a value in the lens and the and the and the you know background that you bring when you tell stories as women as asian women as filipino women so for example i'm very excited about a couple more episodes that i'm actually in the philippines right now to shoot and I'm confident I can tell those stories from a very real authentic perspective because I'm a Filipino woman. There is nobody else who can tell the story better than me because I'm Filipina and I'm a woman, you know? So again, that goes back to what we were talking about of why is it important to have women in the newsroom? Why do we need female journalists anyway? Um it's because of that. It's to be able to highlight these sort of stories that get ignored if there were only men running newsrooms. Yeah. I I would like to talk about that again. Females in the newsroom. I I found personally that I get terrible advice on how to how to behave and what to do from 
male superiors. I mean, not not all of them, but looking back, I feel like the worst things that were told to me in terms of what to do as a as a reporter or as a journalist or as an anchor all came from people who can't really relate to our unique perspective. Right. So has there any has there been anything that was that you were told that you were given a piece of advice that you found is really of utmost importance or value in your experience of being a female journalist? Oof. That's a tough question. Um, and again, I think it, it's, it's because I, I've been so privileged to be with um, women, right? Um, you know what? The, yes and no. I mean, I think, you know, having had female managers to start, it was so good to get very personal advice on, honestly, how to act around male subjects. Um, you know, what to wear, to be able to not send the wrong signals, yeah. even if it's even if it's not you sending wrong signals, even if signals are being misread, right? But these small things, because they're women who have also been on the field, right? Um, don't accept yeah. an invite in this private place. Make sure it's always in this public place. So, so there were, you know, there were cafes that we were always frequent for interviews because they were safe. They were safe places, you yeah. know? Um, or even honestly, women talk, right? So we sort of know in the field, hey, you know, be careful when you interview this politician because he tends to do this, right? Or, you know, so it's just being able to prepare yourself. Um, and that was, that was so helpful. And again, I don't think like, you know, male journalists have to think about this. They just go and they're just like, all they really need to think about is the story, is getting the story. While we have to use a lot of our brain cells, not just to get the story, but to make sure we're wearing the right thing, we're asking the right questions, we're not insulting them so they give us the interview. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> It is, it is. And if you, sometimes a male manager will tell you like, Iksian mo pa yung, ano, yung palda mo. Para, right. Just so the subject will talk to you. It's, it's, exactly. it's kind of, and you know, when you're young and impressionable and you, you tell these things to younger, younger totally. reporters or younger journalists, of course, they're going to take it to heart because they don't, um, they don't really have any basis of comparison on how to Absolutely. act or, or what to do. So now, after these huge movements, worldwide like the me too movement and mm -hmm. the black lives matter mm -hmm. and the black lives matter movement the topics of women's issues and diversity so that's being a woman and that's being say asian or filipino they're very much at the global forefront and as yes. someone in the media someone who is already looking at things from a global standpoint how do you think all of these will play out in terms of new opportunities for filipinas specifically hopefully mm. in the not so distant future this conversation reminds me of Bombshell because I just watched it um, in quarantine with my partner. And it's, you know, the story of how um, the female, uh, the woman journalists at Fox News was able to basically, yeah. well, it was loosely based on it. But, you know, it, there's a Me Too movement among women journalists. Yeah. And I think that all this awareness, um, this, is, this is what I really take to heart. That as a woman journalist who has made it in the global space, my goal is to get more of us here. Um, I think it's so essential to be able to provide that support and that mentorship to Asian women, to Filipina women. And I think that when you have a mentor who is in a higher place, in the same way that I had Maria, I was very confident in my own abilities because I was reminded of, of what I could do, that there was no glass ceiling, for example. I also felt protected. Honestly, I felt secure. 
And when you take that fear off of young journalists, when they can just literally focus on their work, then the work that is produced and the journalism that is produced is so much of a higher standard because they know they don't have to worry about this, right? They don't have to put mental space, any of their headspace into help and protect themselves because they know that they have an editor who's watching out for them, right? So I think all these movements will only mean good things because even for, and it's not just a woman thing, right? I think even men now in leadership positions are becoming more conscious of the need to bring in more women, to bring in diversity in their newsrooms. And the more allies we have, the better. And you and I know, Leah, right, that being a woman doesn't necessarily suddenly mean that they're your allies. In fact, sometimes they're the ones who bring you down, right? So I think all That's this- true. Movement, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, all these conversations, hopefully, open us up to all realize that there's so much room on top, right? It's not a competition, um, which I think has been so embedded again in women yes. journalists for the long time. They put us against each other, so that we don't succeed. At the end of the day, when you look at it, all of these biases and these systems in place are really against us, right? And unless we sort of realize that all of these rules are there because they want to suppress us, then we're literally just following that cycle. But until we recognize that, wait a second, actually, you know, there's a lot of room on top. Just because you're succeeding in your show doesn't mean I can't get that show, which is notorious in network TV, for example, right? Um, then... You know, until we realize that these are not true, then um, we're gonna we're gonna be feeding to the same cycle. But I do think that's changing. I really, I mean, the fact that you have this podcast is amazing. I I, I want to repeat that because that's something that that we haven't really discussed so much. So you talk about women empowerment, but usually it's you know discuss how sometimes it's women who are preventing it. Also, yeah, like you know, it's it's pulling each other down because that's how culturally we were we were. That's what we were taught. Like, you know, it, it's exactly. crab mentality at its finest. It's, but, but I, do you think that, do you think that this is reversible? I mean, can you teach women to not think along those lines? Do you think, yeah. you think it's reversible or do you think you have to really start young and then change the system from, from, from the very beginning for young girls? I think it can change, honestly. And this is, this again goes back to what I was talking about, about internalized misogyny and internalized biases, right? We grew up in a society that told us that we need to compete with women to succeed, that, um, you know, all of these things. And, and sometimes the biases, you don't recognize them, right? You don't, within ourselves, like even sometimes when, even sometimes when I say like, oh yeah, it's because like women are catty. No, women are not catty, right? Then I catch myself and I say, see, like that's how deeply embedded it is that I've become, I've come to believe that women are catty, but like that's what's been told to us growing up, right? Um, so I think it's going to take a while. I mean, we're not that old, right? Like we're in our thirties, <laughs> right? Yeah, um, yeah. And still it's hard, right? We're on social media. We understand these things at their core. We're feminists, right? Imagine those who aren't. Imagine those yeah. who, you know, who who aren't in, who don't even believe in feminism because there are women like that. Yeah. It takes a while. It takes a while. But I think by recognizing that it it's hard, it's difficult, um, is the first step. And then acknowledging it when it happens, catching yourself. It's not going to happen overnight. But I do have faith in the next generation um, because they are growing up with less and less biases than we did. Yeah. Yours seems like an amazing newsroom to work in, I have to say. <laughs> not perfect. And, and it's not perfect, that, but, but it's good. It's good. <laughs> mm. 
But it sounds like light years away from the traditional newsrooms that most people are used to, at least, well, here in the Philippines, at least, but I'm sure all over the world. Thank you so much, Natasha, for sharing all of this with us. And and as a as a fellow media practitioner, I am I feel really light and I feel great knowing that there are other people out there, other women out there who who share the same views on things and who are not, you know, who are who don't want to pull other women down. So I, I, it it brings me a lot of joy, really, to know that that you're fostering all of this, all of this sisterhood and all of this support and young journalists who are under you. Yeah, thank you so much. Like, I'm, I'm excited about the stories that are yet to be told by women journalists. I'm excited to see what other Asian stories we're going to get from women, especially as spaces and newsrooms open up to us. Um, and I'm just happy to be here, honestly, to be in a position to be able to help and to be able to mentor younger journalists. So that's that's what I'm grateful for. Thank you so much for coming on What Glass Ceiling and sharing all of the ceilings that you've had to break or shatter on your own journey. Thank you, Leah. Thanks, guys. Um, and obviously, yeah, thanks for thanks for listening to me rant about women in newsrooms. And I know it sounds like there's a lot of challenges and a lot of obstacles, um, but but there are there's room for us. There's room for us, and there's people supporting women like us, and I, I can only see things getting better. Check out the other episodes of What Glass Ceiling and follow us on Instagram at WGCPong. <laughs>